My sermon today is about the reading from Deuteronomy, where Moses gets to see the promised land, but he doesn't get to go into it, and, about the, and the reading from Matthew's Gospel, which is the summary of the law, loving God and loving neighbor. But as is usually the case, on the night before the Sunday, I'm lying in bed at night, wake up, and think, you know, I... I ought to say something about holiness. There was an alternate reading we could have read for the Hebrew, from the Hebrew Bible today, and that's the reading from Leviticus, you shall be holy because I am holy, God says to Moses. And somehow I think the relationship between love of neighbor and loving God and loving your neighbor uh, has to do with the cultivation of a certain species of holiness. But if we think about our spiritual pilgrimage and its connection with, say, a great uh, patriarch like Moses, it maybe has something to do also with uh, how we look at our lives as we move forward and perhaps mature or grow in our vocations. But we all have a history of one kind or another. Uh, Moses is taken, it says, by the way, in the text, that he was 120 and that his, uh, his sight had not dimmed and uh, he was vigorous and so on. I don't, in, elsewhere in Deuteronomy, he says, I'm having a little trouble getting around. <laughs> I think if you were 120, you'd certainly have a little trouble getting around and no doubt he did. But here's the thing, he gets taken to Mount Nebo and he goes to Pisgah and he looks and he's shown the promised land, but he's reminded that he's not going to get to go in there. He's not going to get to lead the people into the promised land. And I thought to myself, well, how come? He's the great leader. Uh, it's somewhat ambiguous as to why he, couldn't, he didn't go in. Uh, in the book of Numbers, it says, But the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Because you did not trust in me to show my holiness before the eyes of the Israelites, therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land that I have given them. So certainly Aaron caved in the teeth of the reactivity and the anxiousness of the people of Israel while Moses is away, receiving the instrument that would convey to the people of Israel, the holiness of God, the Ten Commandments. But they were anxious and worried and nervous, and so Aaron caves and they build the golden calf. So maybe that's a reason, a failure of leadership. Uh, in another place, early on, Moses kills somebody. He kills an Egyptian. And maybe that was something that was not good. All this goes to show is this. Even the people who are faithful to God's purposes for them and advance the purposes of God in the world have a history. In the therapeutic culture that you and I live in, we would say that Moses made certain choices. And so while God's grace is available to all of us to heal us, to mature our sensibilities, 
to change our habits of being and relating, to give us a greater uh, internal self-regulation and regulation of instinctual drives. Our history comes with us, and sometimes we may do stuff that uh, has lasting effect. And maybe this is about how that works. And so those of us who have done things where there's been lasting effect also know that God's healing power is unlimited and God unconditionally loves, accepts, and forgives us. But we all have a past. And so we may not get to the promised land in the same way that we thought. A lot of people believe, you know, that faithfulness is going to produce uh, just having things the way we want them. And what turns out is that that's not always so. And I think this is a reading about that, about realizing that that's the, the case. Maybe uh, spiritually, emotionally, and mentally reconciling ourselves to that reality and not allowing it to uh, deflect us from our desire to live a life more congruent with God's purposes for us. I got to thinking about holiness because in Matthew's Gospel, we have today the summary of the law. And I think that, that living faithfully uh, out uh, the summary of the law is certainly difficult. And it requires some species of holiness. Now, most of the time when we think about holiness, we think about um, heroic behavior. Some form of separation. A way of being different. And certainly the holiness codes in the ancient Near East involve the whole idea of separation and how we stand apart in some way. You know, in Christianity, here's how we tried to, we've tried to grapple with the issue of the cultivation of holiness and its importance. In uh, the, the history of Christianity, let's say in the first two or three hundred years, we begin to see something emerge, uh, particularly in the Near East, uh, which, that we now call monasticism. People who believed that in order to achieve holiness, you had to separate yourself from the world. So you get out of the flesh pots of the Roman Empire and you go into the desert. And of course, we read about certain behaviors on the part of the people who thought they needed to do that that would make your hair stand on end, right? And if we thought to ourselves that's what would be required to cultivate holiness, it would seem to have few adherents. <laughs> Most of us aren't called to do that. But we have then the evolution of the solitaries, the hermits. Um, any of you want to read about them and some of what they say, there's a famous book by Helen Waddell called The Desert Fathers, and you can read about uh, this movement. But we began then to foster community life among people who sought this, and we have the early development of Cenobitic monasticism. And in Western Christianity, the great father of the Western uh, spiritual tradition in that way is Benedict of Nursia. And he begins to put this together and to figure out how people who are called to do that can live together. He wrote a rule. I love one of the passages. Make sure that the brethren, when they go to sleep at night, 
do not wear their knives to bed lest they cut themselves. <laughs> Sound advice. But the cultivation of holiness somehow for most of us has got to be done differently. But you know, by the time we get to the Middle Ages, people began to have different views about the religious life. Uh, some of these religious communities were sort of um, huge redevelopment projects out in the wilderness, improving the agriculture, clearing the land, doing all of that kind of thing. Some people viewed the monasteries as powerhouses of prayer and locations for spiritual nurture. Others viewed it in a superstitious fashion and believed that they were sort of cranking it out on my behalf and so I could sort of do what I wanted to do. I believe that the Protestant Reformation was a desire to promote a certain species of holiness, which was we're going to take the, this out of the monastery and have everybody be a monk or a nun. The Puritan ethic. That we're all going to live this sort of hair-raisingly austere life personally in the world in such a way as we believe that we're called to this particular purpose. But perhaps holiness of life or the process of sanctification or growing into what it means to love God and to love your neighbor is something that you do simultaneously without wearing it on your sleeve you learn to do this you know in the in the hair raising end of these things there's a great uh, Saint Athanasius of Alexandria a bishop in the fourth century wrote a biography of Saint Antony of Egypt a famous solitary, a hermit. He went into the desert and he lived in a cave for 25 years. Now, when you hear about that, that doesn't mean they're just in there by themselves all the time. People would come out and, you know, ask them stuff. Anthony, are you in, the, you know, that kind of thing. And Should I sell apples short? You know, that... <laughs> But there was a network of people who had used him for spiritual counsel and other hermits. So it got around one day, after 25 years of this, that St. Anthony is going to come out of his cave. So a lot of people came out to watch it. And St. Anthony comes out of the cave. But here's the part that I like, thinking about the cultivation of holiness of life, of sanctity. Athanasius reports, Anthony comes out of the cave. He was a man who did not appear wasted by hair-raising austerities. He did not appear to be a man who had indulged himself by himself in an overweening sense. He did not appear to be particularly glad to see us. He wasn't particularly upset that we were there. He was a man at home with himself. He was a man at home with himself. Now, you and I aren't going to go into a cave to get to that. But I wish I was more at home with myself than I am. And I bet some of you do too. 
And somehow the cultivation of holiness of life may have something to do with the ways and the means by which we say, I love God and I want to know God's purposes for me in the world. I wish to be a transparency and a reflection of God's grace and love in the world. And I realize that the way to do that is to connect it with the love of neighbor. It is the only way that I can see how to do it. And the collect that we prayed at the beginning of the Mass has something to do with increasing faith, hope, and charity. That that's the ways and the means that you and I can get to the cultivation of holiness of life and sanctification. You know, the Anglican Church has been very influenced by the Protestant Reformation. And one of the cornerstones of Protestantism is that you and I are saved by our faith. Not in anything that we can do. We're saved by grace. But many Anglicans from the jump said that Reformation principle has had a powerful influence on us. But we may not think of faith apart from hope and charity. The reason for that is that those are the infused virtues that you and I receive at our baptism. They are the theological virtues, faith, hope, and charity, or faith, hope, and love. That's what you receive from God in a sacramental sense and in a spiritual sense. God coming in an inward way to enlighten and strengthen you. And so the generous impulses... The ability to be faithful is not something self-generated. It comes from God. How would we understand that? Well, if you look at your personal history and you think about going through a bad patch and you look now back in hindsight and you say to yourself, I have no idea how I got through that. I just had faith that I was going to do it. Well, God got you through that. And the faith that you have is from God. Well, how do you make it manifest in the world? You become now more able to express the generous impulses of hope and charity. Somebody said to me a long time ago, hope is honesty, openness, persistence, and enthusiasm. So in terms of our daily living, we reflect those qualities back to the world in some way. Honesty, openness, persistence, and enthusiasm. Jesus, in today's gospel, puts together two prayers that all pious Jews say. He did not make those up. They are not unique to him. But in the Hebrew literature, in the Talmudic literature, in all of the tradition of Judaism, these prayers are shown in parallel. So rabbis get into conversations about which one is heavier and which one is lighter, and, you know, which has the more power and force and effect. Jesus conflates them. It is unique to him. You must love God and you must love your neighbor. And these two things are inseparable. They're part of the DNA of living a holy life. Last week I mentioned, uh, I think it was last week, about that series on the great faith traditions with Bill Moyers and Dr. Houston Smith. And when Dr. Smith was asked, what is it 
that you would say is a way of determining whether or not you have made any spiritual progress. And Houston Smith said, in all of the world's great faith traditions, the spiritual masters of those traditions have said, when a person begins to make spiritual progress, they notice in themselves an increase in the generous impulses that are part of our human nature. That there is somehow an increase in generosity with regard to material things, but also with regard to our sense of connection, the desire to bring health and wholeness to relationship, the desire to take other people seriously, to realize that somehow in big and small ways you can and should become an instrument of creating a society where it is easier for people to be good. And that reflects what spiritual progress is. You can't do it without loving God and loving your neighbor. It's just part of the way it works. Uh, C.S. Lewis, who's famous in Christian circles, wrote a book that is not so famous or well-known uh, called The Abolition of Man. And he sought in this book to describe what he thought were the basic ideas that are reflected in uh, human interaction through history, even in ancient times. In other words, drilling down, just like an underground stream. He referred to this in the book as the Tao. Not D-O-W, but D-A-O, right? So that means that what it means to be a decent human being has something to do with generosity, and he reproduces sayings from the Icelandic verses, you know, from ancient sources of all kinds, and says, you know, this, this must be uh, part of what it means to be a human being. And you hear me say this over and over again. You and I are created in God's image. We reflect back to the world this image of God. When we become decent human beings, we become less unlike God. It is important for us to be decent human beings. And we need to cultivate the highest and best of our humanity in order to be consistent with what the Savior teaches in the gospel. So give thanks this week for the opportunity to be faithful. Own your history. Understand that your history is going to have some influence on things, but that we all have the capacity to grow in grace. We all have the capacity to be able to uh, deal better with our internal demons. We all have the capacity to uh, exercise a little bit more faith, hope, and love. So give it a try this week. Amen.